Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 60. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to our first Tradecast of 2021 and our first LinkedIn live stream. My name is Devesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global and host of the podcast Trade Finance Talks. On behalf of the International Trade and Forfeiting Association, ITFA, and Trade Finance Global, TFG, we'd like to welcome you all joining us from all around the world, discussing this very important topic around sustainable trade finance. Six years ago to this very week, I shook hands with the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, after completing a research mission to the Peruvian Amazon rainforest, exploring the economic value of biodiversity. I'll spare you the tarantula, river rapids, and indigenous tribe stories for another day. A figure I used back then and that I'll use today is 33 trillion US dollars. 33 trillion US dollars is the estimated real economic value of global biodiversity each year. Why so? Biodiverse areas such as rainforests and our oceans are valuable for pharmaceuticals, food, and other products useful to humans. They also provide services like carbon sequestration, climate stabilization, balancing the fragile food chain, recreational value, and providing clean water. Right now, we don't account for these intrinsic values when calculating or realizing the true cost of a trade transaction, such as pre-shipment financing for mahogany or a borrowing-based facility for copper or tin mining. When asked by Prince Philip, who of course was known for his interest in wildlife, serving as president of the Worldwide Fund for Nature for 15 years, what I was doing in the Amazon rainforest, my last words to him were saving the rainforest, of course, but not just because it has cute, fluffy animals. Today, we're taking the washing out of greenwashing. And as TXF's Catherine Morton puts it, we'll be tackling the silent G in ESG and discussing the business imperatives that are driving our industry towards sustainable and greener transactions. Trade is, by its very nature, a consumptive, resource-intensive business, but we know we can do better as an industry. If we are to jointly work towards the Paris Agreement and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, then truly understanding the benefits of sustainable trade assets, appetite from the investment community, and sharing best-in-class practices around the world is critical. Today, I would like to invite my excellent panel to join me on this virtual stage. And I would also personally like to thank Sean Edwards, Chairman of ITSFA, as well as Roberto Lever and Harriet Resnick, co-chairs of the ICC Sustainable Trade Finance Working Group for making this happen today. We are joined by NLN Swaroop, Director of Alternative and ESG Distribution at HSBC, as well as being on the ICC Sustainable Trade Finance Working Group, and Maria Cronin, Director at Quarter Penny Consulting, Katerina Michael, Unicredit, and also ICC Sustainable Trade Finance Working Group, and Joe Wissing, Board Member, for the ESG committee at ITFA. So, 
I would like to invite the members to join me on stage and let's start with a quick introduction. Saroop, in no more than 30 seconds or so, please can you introduce yourself? Who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? Thank you, Dipesh. Thanks for this opportunity. I'm NLN Swaroop. I work at HSBC and I lead Alternate and ESG Distribution for Trade Finance. Very excited to be here and share my thoughts. I'm personally involved in two working groups at ICC for sustainable trade finance, as well as institutional investors in trade finance. And this topic is of highest relevance in both because people are looking to integrate ESG into trade finance practices and also have greater access to capital for trade finance to grow in future. So very, very happy to be here and share my thoughts. Anne-Marie, over to you. Yes, good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Anne-Maria Cronin. I'm a co-director of Quarterpenny Consulting Limited, a sustainability consulting firm. Um, prior to becoming a co-director at QPC, I was uh, environmental social associate director at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in London, where I started my involvement in trade finance, working uh, on the EBRD's trade facilitation program, educating and training banks on the environmental and social risks in respect to trade finance. So many years of working in this space. I'm looking forward to our interaction today on this topic. Thank you. Katerina, over to you. Hello, everybody. So thanks, Deepesh, for being here today. I'm Katrina Michael. I'm actually co-heading GDB Germany in Unicredit, and I'm responsible for an entry point for the ESG topics in transaction banking, including trade finance for Unicredit from the global perspective. And my touch points with ESG um, actually last quite in the past, because I used to be for 20 years in commodity finance, and particular in soft there is a great topic since decades on sustainable finance and sustainable fair trade certificates, all these topics. Naturally, I'm quite interested here and I bring my experience within the ICC Working Group for Sustainable Trade Finance. I'm happy to be here today, Deepesh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And Joe. As ITFA's latest board member looking after ESG, please can you introduce yourself and give a quick summary of ITFA to our audience before we move on and start the panel session today? Yeah, thank you very much for that introduction, Deepesh. It's great to be here and uh, and thank you very much for the audience all for dialing in on this very, very important topic. Real pleasure. Yeah, I'm Joe Wissing. As Deepesh has rightly said, I'm the uh, the latest uh, new joiner to the ITFA board, which joined in late December 2020 to look after ITFA's ESG activities. ITFA, i.e. the International Trade and Forfeiting Association, I think is uh, quite familiar to most on the call. Really, it is one of the main industry bodies bringing together the key players in trade finance, forfeiting and asset distribution. And ITFA's aim really is to strive and bring together that community to educate the membership on events happening on trade, to work with other industry bodies, to work with regulators, to further foster the evolution of trade, whether that be around topics such as ESG or around technology uh, innovation, which of course is really important for trade, or whether that's about also attracting the next generation of trade finance talent. That is it for sort of in a nutshell. On the ESG side, we've just set out on the journey and we're very, very certainly encouraged by all the activity we are seeing in this place and the interest and certainly really good to be on this tradecast today with, with you. Thank you very much. So let's get straight in and get started. 
What's the definition of sustainable trade finance assets? Joe, do you have any thoughts on this? Not one, that's for sure. There is not a single sort of like definition that you could look up in the dictionary and say, this is what sustainable trade finance is, which is fine. That's not an issue because it's something that the industry will develop over time as it does with so many other things. It took quite, I'd say it took a number of decades actually for there being sort of like a bit more of a glossary and a summary of what trade finance overall is and what it entails. So we certainly see a push by financial institutions by NBFIs and then certainly again by the other industry bodies next to it, for such as the ICC, such as also BAFT, to come up with definitions, come up with common standards and to yeah, lead us to a bit more of a clue what actually we're talking about to make sure we all sing from the same hymn sheet. So while we don't have one single definition today, I'm really optimistic. We are moving towards that. And at the same time, we also don't need to sort of like have a dictionary-like term as long as we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. Absolutely. It's quite a vague term. And Katerina, where does the line get drawn perhaps between sustainable trade finance, green finance and ESG? That is a very question, Deepesh. And I have to admit that I believe this is still a floating line in between, mixing just things between, you know, sustainable trade finance, as I said in the beginning, is somehow in the world since decades And so we all know all these certificates. And you know what we always forget a little bit is that sustainability does not only mean green, which is the differentiating factor to the green finance part. It is social and it is governance. So it means transparency on supply chain. It means social rights for the supplier employees. And of course, it also have a look on the whole supply chain, including segments which we never had a spot on, like transport shipping, for example, is a very important factor. And the ESG itself, we need to be a little bit careful not to create too much washing and marketing exercises. It is a serious topic. If you look around um, how advisors, um, law firms, etc., cetera, playing this game, We need to really be careful not to conclude uh, wrong decisions from this. There are figures in the world like trillions of available financings for ESG, and actually there are no projects. I think we need to have a look into what we mean with ESG projects, and we need to target the opportunities and to cluster the segments a little bit more besides the point that we need to have clear definitions, common standards on a global perspective, which to my perception will still take time. So what could be the impact of defining sustainable trade finance? How could it benefit the industry? You know, just to echo what other panelists are saying, defining sustainable trade finance is actually pretty foundational for this work, right? As in for this to evolve. And we often forget that Sustainable trade finance, once defined, can actually lead to many benefits, not just the common benefit of generating a standard and getting everybody to work in a similar way, but really creating value chains of the future. And that's where the focus now is. And, you know, this is amplified in the current COVID crisis. Many of the businesses are now looking to reimagine their businesses, are having to reorient supply chains and really change based on the new consumer behavior and developing resilience within their businesses. And that point is inherent that as the value chains evolve, developing standards for sustainable trade finance is very, very critical because only then we will be able to make finance accessible for these new emerging value chains in the right way. Because unless you have a clear definition, you can't increase the access to capital 
innovation and thereby creating more resilience in the system. I think it's quite foundational. The work that has happened from LMA and green loan principles, etc., is very good. And now there is talk amongst industry bodies like Joanne mentioned around ICC and other industry bodies to see that develop a common standard. And I think that's where policymakers and institutions, industry institutions have a role to really develop this common standard, which are acceptable to various stakeholders. So the value is really in developing trade finance and making it accessible in future for us to define sustainable trade finance. Pamela Ma, who says, you know, we know there's no definition and that everyone refers to different things that it will take time. And uh, panelists are talking around around my questions. So uh, I'm going to push you guys to define this as, as best as possible. So just moving on to the next section now, the business benefits of sustainable trade finance. And Anne-Marie, are we greenwashing still or are we actually trying to use buzzwords? When you look at the word sustainability, I mean, we, we look at marketing departments and companies are still using sustainability to market their products and services that to be as pitched as sustainable because these are easier to sell, right? But these are companies who try to claim the high ground and trying to keep out their competitors and their rivals and and they're spending actually more resources in looking green and appearing green than actually on their own environmental footprints. So they can be quite misleading, these buzzwords of claims of being green or sustainable or eco or fair. These companies are kind of jumping on the bandwagon as such. These claims can actually make non-green products hard to distinguish from those that are, have been verified as, uh, with green credentials or verifiably green. And then there are companies that are very good and, and then very committed and they know what they're doing. And these firms that are taking are more serious about green are those that, that do have positive impact on society. They don't pretend to be, or they're not talking about it, but they are actually having positive uh, contribution and they have a plan. Just on one thing, when we've been going through this year of lockdown during this pandemic, what we look at is consumer behavior as well. And, and consumers are becoming evidently more and more conscious of their own environmental impact. And more companies as well are actually trying to sell to the world or to the consumers how much they care about the planet in their marketing. But consumers are paying more attention to the issue of sustainability, I think. And it seems to be people more on the internet researching products, looking for the word environment as coming up a bit more in Google searches for the products that they want to purchase and say that they want products that they want to buy. These products must be locally sourced or naturally sourced or sustainable. So where and how a product is sourced is becoming more important in the purchasing process. So greenwashing does open the doors, but greenwashing is one of the biggest threats to sustainability. So companies and retailers, we need to be aware of this. So if we let companies get away with talking and not doing the walking and not demonstrating that they're actually doing something on sustainability, then we're not going to see real change. Question on the business rationale, and I guess touching on what Anne-Maria was saying earlier. And Joe, is there a business rationale or imperative for applying sustainable finance principles? And let's go back to my introduction on, on the Amazon rainforest. Is there anything that we can relate to here? And we can perhaps talk even about Bolsonaro's case study of, of burning the Amazon rainforest last year. To answer your first question, is there a business imperative? 100%. This is not uh, nice to have anymore or something that, yeah, you put in a marketing brochure, as Anna Maria was saying. There is definitely a business imperative. And why is it? 
Well, simply because if we look at who is important for a business, it's basically three key stakeholders, right? Their own employees, it's consumers, obviously, and it is shareholders. And we are seeing more and more a push by today's consumers and by today's individuals, whether they then for employees or, or shareholders or whatever, towards a more ESG positive outcome. So we're really not just talking about green, right? We're talking about environmental, we're talking about social and also governance. I find the discussions that are happening, for example, at the moment around Amazon to see the first union being created actually um, quite interesting because it's one of these things where as a consumer, I think we all like to order from Amazon because it's convenient. But actually, from a governance model, we hear some pretty poor things about the company. And, and it's things like that, which I think drive an interesting discussion. It's interesting what you're saying about Bolsonaro and, and the rainforest is certainly interesting because ultimately, Bolsonaro's burning down the rainforest is driven by an increased demand for soy products, right? And this increased demand for soy products actually is partially driven, of course, on the one hand, by a growing population, but also by a growing population looking for alternative to meat products which in a way is a positive if we look at what sort of like global farming does, for example. But yeah, in this case, actually, we uh, then have a scenario by which actually there's significant harm being done. What I found interesting about that discussion and that debate in particular is, of course, there was a public outcry and there was a lot of criticism, but there was also a lot of criticism of the critics. So overall, I think it's fair to say that this is still a very hotly debated topic but at the end of the day, it's also a trend which cannot be stopped. I mean, ESG is, is on so many people's agendas. Of course, it also depends on which, which part of the world you are, whether you're in the developing world or in the developed world. But at the end of the day, companies must act today in order to be ready. Like there is no time to waste. And hence, it is a business imperative, 100%. Absolutely. And I guess let's talk about assessing risk. Katerina, how can we assess risk when it comes to sustainable trade finance? That's actually a very good question, because when you speak about a business case, and that is what we actually did right now, when we spoke somehow a little bit about benefit, you should not forget the risk about the potential. Let's have a look on the overall estimation you have, which are flying around in terms of opportunities, in particular for banks. There is a need of more than five trillion in investment globally. There is an estimate. Out of that, the figures was raised of more than 100 billion revenue pool globally, which are flying around for banks. Um, honestly, if we have a closer look on this, we have to say that part of that is actually replacing an existing revenue pool. Why that? Because simply investments will shift from the previous fossil one to the new green world. But also there's an inherent risk, which is on the business models of the company. And when we come to sustainable trade finance and risk assessment, that should be embedded in the overall risk assessment of the business model of the client and also of a bank. What we can do when we define sustainable trade, and I think that is the key question today, and we should not wait a long time until you know the community has agreed on an overall and comprehensive framework. I think every party, every insurer has to do his own work. That means we need to have a questionnaire and those questionnaires, which by the way are also regulated and disclosure directive. So you need to have a questionnaire in the bank when you speak about risk and that is climate and sustainability. And out of that, you will have a part which is addressing trade naturally. Of course, you have a look on supply chain. When the supply chain is firm and it's compatible with an ESG framework in terms of 
environmental topics, like, for example, let's take the shipping industry, which I mentioned in the beginning, in terms of social, meaning employee rights, particularly in emerging countries, and comes to transparency, we automatically so just looking on the risk is where we need to start. That is actually defining what we find as common ground for the future. Absolutely. And I guess let's talk about pricing incentives and bad behavior. And hopefully I can answer Zaheb Khan and, and Bavna Sarafa. Hi, Bavna from Lloyd's there. And question perhaps to Saru, how are you seeing appetite from various participants in the secondary market? So insurance, banks, funds for ESG trades. Is there an element of decentivizing unsustainable trade or incentivizing green trade? And what does that actually mean in reality? There are many questions within one question packed, right? So I would like to cover this in three parts. So generally, trade finance in the investor community, interest is increasing. And there is always, I mean, this asset class in general is low risk, positive yield and a real economy asset class. So there is massive interest in trade finance in general. And the problem with trade finance for the investor community has traditionally been that this is a space which has been mainly led by banks, but investors have not been able to access it because of the ability to access the complexity, the nuances and the transactional nature. But in case of ESG, this very nature actually becomes a positive because trade actually offers transactional visibility, end use visibility, and is specific real economy in nature, it makes it very, very easy for ESG assets to be tracked. Therefore, the asset class inherently is very attractive for ESG sort of financing. Investor community is actually looking at it and extending on Katharina's point. There is work that individual banks and institutions, including us, are doing on integrating ESG in our risk frameworks. Right? But that has to evolve a little more. And I think what needs to happen there is that ESG risks have to be looked at not only from historical perspective, but from a future resilience perspective. So the risk modeling within banks has to also evolve, not just on the historical risk data, but also future resilience risk on ESG parameters. And this needs to get integrated in the price, in the asset that the banks and other institutions are originating. And investors are actually looking for that. So once you have, and all these elements are so interconnected. So once you have these definitions, which are evolving from different institutions, and hopefully at the end, industry bodies will come up with a common definition, which everybody can accept. This will probably create an ESG index or a transparency for investors to access because investors are actually looking at a straight index, which can identify a particular trade finance asset as ESG and having a score or ESG score around it, and then being able to invest. Having said that, that's the end state. In the interim, there continues to be a lot of interest in ESG from investors. We see investors having their own criteria on evaluating these assets. And we are trying to bridge that gap between originators and investors to be able to share more and more investments, uh, you know, assets to be able to access the green trade finance or sustainable trade finance. You just saw Loan Market Association come out with social loan principles just yesterday. So I think this is a massive space, tremendous interest. But pricing is not the only way to incentivize this, is what I would say. Pricing is one of the tools which will help the movement towards ESG, but not the only tool. It's the whole movement towards sustainability and ESG as a whole, which will help drive this transition, not just for new businesses, but for existing businesses to move towards 
you know, green and ESG nature. Joe Wissing, what's your view? You're a banker. Are you going to fund assets based on how sustainable or unsustainable they are? Do you have a view on this? As the other panelists, as Katarina and has already said, it's really now an integral part of banks' risk frameworks to actually sort of like go through a sustainability assessment. And that's on the one hand, of course, to basically say, is this, for example, like this project that we're looking at or so, is this something that would particularly drive a positive ESG outcome? There is, of course, also the risks of, let's say, are we actually going to finance something that is definitely um, not positive from an ESG perspective? And again, each bank has got its own frameworks and policies around that now. Most banks obviously publish these. I think what is important against the backdrop of all this is certainly there's been a lot of push by the banks as a side to, for example, create designated internal funds that are being used to give pricing incentives, for example. But I think what is really important, what we should not forget is that as banks with long-standing client relationships, we also need to work very closely with our clients to ensure that the transition happens in a harmonious way. Let's say you were to pull out of companies from one day to the other that might, I don't know, be doing coal mining business in developing markets. You would basically have to exit every single commodity name on the planet, right? So it's more around really working with companies and understanding their individual circumstances and their strive towards more ESG enhancing outcomes. I think this is what's really important. And of course, that's important. And in particular, if you start looking at let's say, the other aspects, so not just the environmental, but think about social, for example, like avoiding child labor, something we've spoken about, complying with, of course, the Modern Slavery Act in the UK, respectively other similar legislations in, in other countries is key, which, of course, um, can become tricky when you have very long-winded supply chains. So it definitely requires a lot of input, particularly in a trade finance context, from banks to actually really understand their customer and understand their business. And I think this is where we are back to basically banking one-on-one, right? It's all about KYC and KYB and uh, and working together and, and learning from one another. Thanks, Joe. And actually a question from Hamza Mzivats that's just come in. Do you think that it would be better to only highlight when the asset is perhaps positive, I guess that means greener, instead of actors trying to blacklist or criticize non-green assets, which could even have more of a negative effect? Very good question and, and certainly a controversial question. And I would say, again, this is within the moment, this is within a lender's appetite and within the lender's framework. And certainly we've seen a lot of lenders step away from, for example, supporting anything that is coal mining related. And again, there is, of course, an importance to understand individual circumstances of individual countries, right? Me being based in Asia, I'm quite realistic that Indonesia with a 300 million population on, I don't know how many hundreds of different islands would struggle a bit to have to power the whole country from one day to the other with uh, wind energy or solar panels, despite their geographic location. So I think it's also important to understand these aspects. In terms of like not talking about the negatives, I personally don't think that that's the right way ahead. That's basically trying to dodge a risk committee. And uh, certainly at the institutions I worked for, you would easily get found out about that one and it would show a very poor record of integrity. So uh, there should be no avoidance of highlighting the issues if there are issues. And then again, then it's important, I think, to highlight the issues and understand them individually and discuss them. And that will then be totally in the bank's risk and compliance appetite. 
Thank you very much. And there's no clear consensus here. Please do feel free to message us using the hashtag trade finance talks across Twitter, LinkedIn and various other channels to get in touch with us if, if you guys have any questions to those of you joining us live on across our, our various channels. So, so given that there's no consensus, what's the possible direction of travel for sustainable trade finance and perhaps its capital treatment? That's a very topical debate, right? And I enter into this debate almost every day with some institution or the other. And this is heavily being debated between ICC, various regulators, policymakers. There is some very good work that EU has published, not just on trade finance, but on sustainable financing as such and how regulators are looking at it. I think where the answer lies, and this needs more consensus, frankly, to be developed, because historically, capital modeling and treatment has to be evidence-based. And the primary objective of regulators is to make sure that there is no systemic risk that is developing when we are doing ESG transition, and also making sure that the institutions remain resilient. Therefore, uh, we have to be very careful about the arguments we are making about capital treatment or preferential treatment for sustainable trade finance. I would rather say we should call it appropriate way or appropriate treatment of ESG or sustainable financing as such. ESG modeling, like I said earlier, has to have both historical as well as futuristic models now. And that is something that organizations and regulators have to evolve, that they actually envisage future scenarios because most of these ESG risks will evolve in the future. And it's impossible to model them based on historical data, which has been the way to model defaults and capital regulations so far. But I think that needs to fundamentally change. I think institutions also need to create this data. So all these market players which are now developing methods of monitoring and you know doing sustainable trade finance, there is a lot of work that's happening from individual players, be it banks, financing companies, fintechs and others which are developing various tools. I think there's a need for all this to come together and sort of create a library of sustainable trade finance data which can be used then for regulatory purposes in order to be able to then do stress testing on future scenarios. I mean, this is an ideal world. This will take more than one institution's effort for us to be able to reach there. But I think it is a call upon multilateral institutions and regulators and you know transnational institutions really to do this because this will require a lot of intergovernmental support as well. For us to be able to then develop these stress testing models, which can be used by any financing institution for lending. So for instance, just to bring this to life for the audience, let's say you have sustainable supply chain finance being provided to various players and you have monitoring data and historical data in particular markets which have been developed. This data then can be put on common libraries which can be then used for various laws in a, you know PD models, LGD models that institutions use based on futuristic trends of ESG. So there is a lot of work to be done in this space. But I think the direction of travel that I am seeing at the ICC Capital Treatment Working Group on Sustainable Trade Finance is that there is definite desire to collaborate. Second, there is definite need for us to develop data. So we are collaborating with ICC Trade Register to get this data together, which is the central repository on trade finance default data right now. And once we have these data flowing through, there will be more evidence for us to establish the riskiness of this asset class or the differentiated nature of this asset class over a period of time. And we have to combine this with regulatory dialogue 
that's already happening and i am very pleased with the work that eu has published i have also seen institution of you know internal institute of internal finance also published some work around this so i think 2021 and 22 will see a lot of debate around this and i'm very positive that this will come out thank you thank you very much sarup and juan de roca totally agrees with you on the chat and gerald bohm hopefully that answers your question although we'll talk about that roadmap in a bit more detail later on and whilst you've got these excellent members also some of you represent the ic sustainable trade finance working group and the for esg committee please ask them questions whilst they're here now let's talk about the regulatory treatment of sustainable trade assets in a bit more detail katerina how can we bring sustainable trade finance assets to capital markets so pension funds etc cetera, etc cetera. is standardization or definitions of sustainability criteria is that the answer i have to say deepesh the assets are already in the market the banks are not the first one bringing those assets into the capital market because there is a a couple of funds hedge funds pension funds already in the market which are doing this business bypassing the banks that's first the point and there is a market already the issue is actually that those projects and that comes a little bit to what uh, swarup said that those projects are perceived as being combined with a higher risk because as we said in the past there was not a dedicated differentiation between green or brown etc so the financial standing was the key factor and of course the region when you look now in the in the most prominent green projects then you find them in regions like africa latin emerging markets of course simply that is perceived as a higher risk and therefore there is another capital market actually assuming and swallowing this risk so one of the task is besides standardization which is clear we need to have a framework but besides that we should work on making a little bit more transparent what's really the, the benefit of a solar project for example and that is not because it's probably paying more profit it's simply because it will most likely stay still when you don't have any coal fired plant and on the other hand of course we miss sustainable trade standards yet that doesn't mean that we cannot leverage on existing standards like the green bond or the green loan framework and those terms they are quite familiar for those investment companies pension funds etc they know how it works so let's leverage on those things in order to bring a little bit more understanding for our asset class let's package and then bring the package to the market there is a market already including by the way private investors so there is quite a lot already ongoing and that is the point where we need to be careful now that the train is not bypassing us that we are part of the game that we are just defining the future for that and shaping it and not wait until everybody is on board it's a critical time right now and if we lose it we may lose a really future oriented opportunity thank you very much katerina suru from a secondary trade finance distribution perspective how do you see the market developing especially given the the i guess the the short term self liquidating nature of, of trade finance and where it's placed at the moment yeah i think what katrina said is absolutely on point right this is the time where we have to collaborate with 
players outside the banking industry, capital markets, other participants. I think sustainability is a topic where we have to collaborate widely across the industry, be it fintechs, legal firms, and multiple players. And that's precisely what we are doing, not just in the ICC sustainability group, but also in the institutional investors in trade finance group, where we are trying to develop again, bridges between the originators and investors for trade finance. And this is the common point that comes up that how do we create formats which are accessible for investors? So that is something that we are doing for capital market investors to invest in trade finance rather than, you know, to make it more accessible. For example, capital market investors are more familiar with securities type formats. Trade finance is not commonly sold in that manner. So that is something that we are trying to industrialize we are also trying to develop the nomenclature, which is common between capital markets and trade finance, so that we are able to make this more accessible and people speak the same language and we are not speaking different language on either side. And I think the biggest role here is also of technology to be able to really present these assets in a very seamless manner to investors. So for instance, you develop indices and then be able to access this seamlessly over a network of technology for investors to go and access. So today, capital market investors are very used to going to you know platforms and buying fixed income securities, for example. So we should be able to then say that trade finance is accessible in securities format. It has an ESG tag, and for which the earlier point I was making, something like an index or a score that comes up and be able to say that these assets are, are of certain standard once we have the definition. So I think that is the direction or the end state vision we have at the industry level. But a lot of work is being done in this area. And there are some very good examples of uh, you know early successes in this, including, and I have also seen interest in the insurance market, for example, to do green insurance and uh, sustainable uh, linked insurance and insurance players are now co-creating these opportunities with some of us on insurance uh, structures for covering ESG trade finance sort of structures. So yeah, very exciting times. I'm sure there's more to come on this. Absolutely. It sounds like we're in very early days now. I guess now to address potentially the elephant in, in the room, but maybe not, which is standardization. And, and lots of people have asked various questions on that. And actually, I'm going to point to Katerina Vasilenko's point, which is anyone who's watched Seaspiracy or Cowspiracy investigative documentaries on Netflix, the conclusion of that is actually a lot of these labels around various standards aren't actually true. And it's a profit engineered organization that's potentially funded by the suppliers of, of various foods and goods anyway. In terms of standardization, and Joe, I'm going to pass this one on to you. Where are we at with defining taxonomy, mapping various standards, et cetera, in sustainable trade finance, and what's left to do? Of course, as I said, we try not to invent you know, the life again, just to leverage on what is existing. And of course, when we look a little bit back, in the previous times, you had this discussion on leveraging counterparts, so if the counterpart is a rating, a green one, or it's G1, then you can live of that. And we decided that we will not follow the route. And as experience showed last year, in particular, also public authorities, they also said, okay, let's go on the underlying, let's go under the use of proceeds, which is exactly where we do see the point. Now, it doesn't make sense that the counterparty has a rating when the underlying is not, I don't know, ESG relevant. However, you know, where we stand right now is you need to find the right and pragmatic compromise and I've seen some of the questions in the chat, how to define or to find the right definitions in order not to 
overdo the administration effort. When we want to be precise, in particular, when we look on the underlying, you potentially have to ask 50 questions. And there is one of the questionnaires of the ICC has been implemented in the SWIFT KYC registry, which is actually addressing part of the information we need also to get in order to understand the underlying of the business model, but also how the company is dealing with their supply chain. And there is, of course, the problem, which label do you trust? But let's be pragmatic here. Bankers are not technicians, you know, and we need to stick to what we can do. So where we are good in and leave, please, the technical questions to much better equipped scientists, for example. So that we need to have a, somehow a pool of labels where we can trust on. And there is even a mapping already existing, which has been done in Europe on a couple of labels, how trustworthy they are, how transparent they are, how objective they are. And there is a kind of reference what you can use. And of course, there are a couple of others where we need to focus on, but we will never address each and every item because if we do, we simply overdo the exercise. We put too much burden in particular on the small suppliers. And let's do not forget the SME element, which is a large part in the S and ESG. You have summarized it perfectly well already. So maybe just one point I want to just highlight in what you said in particular, Katarina, because I think it is so important, is really the main challenge here when it comes to taxonomy and what do we mean when we say taxonomy? I mean, what we're saying is we are aiming to create a uniform and harmonized classification system, right? That is what taxonomy is. And so Rupert was highlighting before the some of the work, for example, that the EU is doing around this at the moment in terms of sustainable finance, not just trade finance, but sustainable finance as a whole. The main challenge, I think, in taxonomy will always be, as Katarina has said, and I just want to highlight that one more again, to find a compromise between what is scientifically robust, but also what is still sort of like doable and practical. And for that, we need data. And again, this is, this is a point that Svarup highlighted. I think that also brings us back to a point there I've seen in the chat where I think there's a controversial views around some people saying we really need to have one definition and panel, please give us one definition. Whereas other people are saying, please, let's not start defining stuff because we will get ourselves tied up in knots. And I think, again, the right answer probably has to be a middle ground about which we want to find that middle ground that actually makes trade accessible for other investors that might not be generally trade finance investors, which is exactly where, again, I'd say the capital markets, yeah, they are way ahead. Certainly comes a lot of it comes down to the complexity of trade finance products. We, of course, we have the green loan principles and a lot of other sort of like standards in the capital markets and that make it easier for investors to access these asset classes. I'd say there, there has to be a middle ground between, yeah, finding taxonomy, as you say, Depeche, but at the same time, not making it too overly complex because as Katarina is saying, it becomes particularly unachievable then for the SME side, which are a large part of the S in ESG. Certainly technology can help there over time. There are a lot of fintechs looking into that. So hopefully there's also going to be scope for development in, in that field. Thank you very much, Joe. And, uh, you know, apologies to all of you for fielding such difficult questions. The chat is very opinionated, which I think is good because we don't have all of the answers. And I guess the next part of this webinar is really discussing education. And Anne-Maria, uh, bring you back to the conversation, because as we build a roadmap for sustainable trade finance, we need to be able to share best practices locally on a kind of global level. How can we do this and what's being done? Can you also talk about the role of education? 
in sustainable trade finance? I think one really useful forum is this webcast that we're doing, podcasts or tradecast that we're doing today, because this actually shares a lot of experience from the panels who've many years in the finance sector and in the trade finance. So I think this is one useful arena to educate people and hopefully people today have learned probably lots of questions following this session. But I think it's important. When I left EBRD, one thing that we had looked at was possibly around the area of e-learning on trade finance or sustainability and trade and trade finance. And we could find nothing available on Googling and trying to find some kind of courses that we could sign up to and actually learn a bit more. So we took a decision to develop one ourselves. So we've launched an e-learning course last year, which is available online. It brings together a lot of the issues that we've discussed today around what standards for supply chain, like eco standards, fair trade standards that are there, that platforms are available, that are internationally recognized and used by organizations and are even promoted by financial markets financial sector as verification standards that they would need to verify and provide evidence through their loan trade financing. Also around ENS risk management practices and what the risks are around trade itself. And we build that into that education platform, e-learning platform. It's a living um, platform. So obviously things are changing rapidly as we were hearing today. There's more progress being made. Just learned about the social loan principles that came out yesterday, I think. So that's something I'm going to be following up on after this call. We look to building up and keeping it up to date as much as possible in this rapidly changing environment. You do have a lot of ICC, the working group, obviously, have, are building up um, momentum, what they're trying to do on standards, definitions, and the MFIs themselves, multilateral financial institutions, are also having some form of e-learning around sustainability and sustainability in the finance sector. You have to find, go and find them. So let's just say that there's a room for a lot of development in this area for education. And if people are interested in looking at our course, it starts off. It's a starting point. And we build in a lot of references to other available courses that we recognize are out there at the moment. So I think it's um, definitely an important area to develop further. For certain. Thanks, Anne Maria, and seen some of the courses that you've worked on and, and developed over the previous years. Just a quick question: Who are the participants of some of these courses? Who do you think are, are kind of benefiting most from them? Currently, it's banks, <laughs> banking professionals, or trade finance professionals. They're the groups that are more attracted to signing up to have their staff take the courses. But we are looking at uh, possible collaboration with some industry partners, So, which has been great because although we wrote the course specifically for the financial sector, we're now actually seeing that there are more parties outside of that group that are interested in understanding what the sustainability and trade means or what sustainability issues mean for trade and what the resources are available for them to touch and to reach out to help them manage the sustainability issues in relation to their trade and manufacturing and products. Thank you very much. And request from Justin Corey, which we will do, we'll, we'll share the links, the e-courses that you're referring to on the Tradecast uh, landing page, tradefinanceglobal.com forward slash Tradecast. And it will also share that link and, and we'll be building a bit of a resource hub 
from this because there are lots of questions asking for a bit more info on some of the topics we've quickly uncovered. We're going to go on for just over five minutes because we have loads and loads of questions and I want to get through a few of the audience questions and kind of continuing on from that education piece around joining the dots. Question for Joe from Omar Baxter. How are we interfacing with rating agencies in our joint exploration of sustainable trade finance as delivering products and solutions is only as valid as the risk investors will choose to take? This is an interesting aspect. One end, you have the classical or the, let's say the big free rating agencies, which are, of course, more increasingly looking at the space because there is a credit imperative today as well, right? And again, this, this comes down to particularly in certain industries where you know that existing business models today won't really be what the consumer is looking for in the next 10 to 20 years. So that brings us back to the fact that as you are looking as a rating agency to assess a company's risk and assign a credit rating, I'm talking about the company globally, right? Not in, in, in relation to specific trade finance business or to a specific capital markets business or whatever, but just to a, a credit rating, you certainly need to look into the longevity of the business, right? Again, we discussed it before. It is a business imperative now to really be on a positive ESG track because otherwise, ultimately, particularly your consumers, but also your shareholders and employees will leave you behind. And then, of course, there is new companies sort of like entering the industry and really looking at signing sustainability scores. Probably the most well-known one to mention here, uh, without wanting to advertise or promo anyone, but is Sustainalytics, which is a Morningstar research company. And who are really striving to set out to create the sustainability ratings. I think it brings us back to the same old we discussed previously. It's really important in this context to get relevant data because this is not just a balance sheet analysis that you sit down with and you go through. I mean, for some sectors, certainly there can be a balance sheet analysis by which, for example, for an oil trader or so, you might be saying, well, you're saying you have reserves based for the next 100 years. How much of that are you actually going to use? Da -di -da -di -da. But I think overall, a classical balance sheet analysis alone will not get you there to really create a rating. So what is important is to, again, collect that relevant data and over time, also by looking at supply chains and supply chains of supply chains, come up with new ways of ratings, for sure. There's a huge learning process here. So a great question from Omar, definitely. Thank you very much. I'm surprised we haven't mentioned fintech or blockchain, which is unusual for anything coming from me. So I'm going to ask it. A question from Bavna Saraf again, and perhaps Katerina, can I ask you to answer this? Could we not use fintech who may have already created parameters for some of these purposes? Yes, of course. And as I wrote in the chat, banks are actually already using it. The point is, they are usually very specific on a certain industry or on a certain product, etc. For example, and here, the working capital industry, the working capital financing part is actually in the lead. You know, we do have a couple of ESG working capital programs already live, not in Unicredit as sold, but in the industry. Here you see that the use is always based on external rating labels, which differentiate from the underlying industry. And then, of course, KPIs those rating agencies and those um, surveyors have created and which then are implemented in the system or on the infrastructure which has been provided by the fintech. It's nothing else. The point is we use it already in working capital, so you need to translate it from the regulatory perspective in the bank's own taxonomy. And of course, it would be very good if out of this, an industry standard is going to emerge. However, 
uh, we need to see how this can be used as well for trade finance. I'm pretty sure it can. It depends, just to make the reference what has been said before, it depends on which minimum set of data the industry agrees together with the regulator what we need to take if we define a trade as a sustainable trade finance. And there it comes down. Once we have the KPIs, we can put them together with fintechs in any infrastructure and use it. But that's, by the way, the same if you look on the green loan or green bond principles. They are, and I saw a question in the chat already, they are ESG guarantees in the market. And those guarantees work by ESG-linked KPIs, and these KPIs are set by external technical experts, and then they are followed. For that, you also can use fintechs systematically in any underlying system. There is definitely room for those fintechs. However, as always, at the end of the day, we need to see whether this is blockchain, which by the way, has a very high energy consumption. I have question marks if this is green in the future, but that's a different topic, not for today. But however, fintechs itself, they will play a substantial role in all that journey. Dipesh, if I can add to what Katrina said, I think there is almost way to look at it in two parts, right? So one is the whole assessment, embedding ESG risk assessment into what in lending institutions are doing. So, i.e., translating ESG risks into PNL risks and try be able to evidence it and basis which make decision of lending or not lending, which could also be used later for regulatory purposes. And the second part is this monitoring and end use monitoring, where we could obviously use any infrastructure, be it fintech, outside world, or so I think there is some work which has happened on the former, but one or two case studies that have got published. But really the collaboration with rating agencies and others would play a big role in translating the ESG risks, considering the futuristic scenarios into future PLs, balance sheet. You know, that is the kind of work that we are looking to do. In fact, this is the kind of thinking that's developing in the white paper that we are developing at ICC Working Group on Capital Treatment for Sustainable Trade Finance, where we are actually looking at developing some use cases for translating trade finance risks into PNL risks and be able to analyze companies differently in future. So if anybody has any question or input on this, we are happy to collaborate again. There is definitely a lot going on in, in this space. I think, Deepesh, you can already tell we could have a, a separate um, trade cast just on that topic alone, because there is certainly a lot of exciting initiatives ongoing in that space. Technology is key. Absolutely. And I'm afraid in the interest of, of everyone's extremely busy schedules and, and timings, but you know, I'm going to ask one last question to everyone, ask you guys to keep it short. We have taken a copy of all of these questions and the panelists and I will, will convene afterwards and, and try and answer a few of them and publish them after alongside with the recording. We've had so many requests for the recording, which we will be extensively publishing to everyone for everyone to view. But uh, what is your future looking view? What's your short-term, medium-term, long-term looking view when it comes to sustainable trade finance and uh, what needs to be done? Who would like to answer this one first? Joe, over to you. If I can just say one thing, let me just pick what I think is still the most relevant is it's about education between clients, lenders, etc. Education and also education of consumers and therefore collaboration. I think that is absolutely key because 
Again, we see it's such a broad topic. There's so much out there, but really it comes down to making sure we are, again, we are all singing from the same hymn sheet, but I'm not saying we need to have one definition. And I'm not a very structured person when it comes to things like this. But this is certainly what I sort of like set as my target for this year with ITFA. And I'm really grateful, Deepesh, that we are doing this thing today, for example, because it massively helps in that aspect, is really to work on the education piece, to just make sure that people understand the complexity of the topic. Sorry. I think if I were to pick out, so collaboration is certainly one. I think this is an area where there's so much collective wisdom between different parties and no one party can do everything. I mean, this is an area which is multidimensional in many ways. So there is heavy need for collaboration and intervention by multilateral and intergovernmental institutions to be able to come up with these standards at the, at the end state. So you know, all these players collaborate with each other and then you have a common neutral body sort of coming up with future standards, etc. in end state is what I see. The key piece, I think, is the whole change that all of us have to make personally as well as professionally of the way we look at our business and work. And I think fundamental shift is going to happen in the value chains around the world. And therefore, the risk assessment of these value chains will also change fundamentally and not, so all the historical models will may not necessarily work for future. So I think these are two fundamental shifts that I see, collaboration and futuristic risk modeling instead of historical risk modeling. Thanks very much, Suri. Anne-Maria. Well, I agree with what everybody said, but one group that I think really needs a lot of assistance are SMEs and helping SMEs get access to the finance to help them grow and become sustainable companies and be able to market their goods and trade. I think uh, that's really important. So I think collaboration with the standards industry, that drives change and the governments and the international financial institutions. I think it's really important moving forward. Katarina. Yes, thanks. I agree with all of what has been said. Education, and I will include advisory, collaboration, and of course, also keeping in mind the broad SME segment. But I think for me, it comes down to one material question. You need to decide whether you are part of the game or you are out. You need to decide the future if you want to leave the forks or if you are the follower. Because that's the question. Are you continuing to preserve your existing business model and to protect the existing revenue pool? Or are you ready to open up to invest? And I mean investment not only in terms of capacity, brain, etc., also in terms of investing of capital, investing of capacities and, and knowledge, and taking potentially an additional risk and an additional hit in your PL. Does not only applies to banks or to trade finance, it also applies to everybody, it applies to countries, it applies to corporates. And that is something, and it even applies to consumers. So therefore, I think we are now at a point where everybody needs to take a decision and then to follow that decision. Because if we all agree that there is something to do and there is an opportunity, then automatically collaboration will follow. And of course, the knowledge is going to be shared and you need to accompany your clients across that journey. Otherwise, it won't work. Thank you very much, Katarina. So to our great panelists and, and actually audience, I'll leave you with this final question echoing the words of Katarina. Are you on the sustainable trade finance train? Because it's on the platform, but it's leaving shortly. Saru, Anne-Maria, Joe Wissing, Katarina, 
Thank you very much for being excellent panelists on this truly incredible Tradecast. We will be emailing all of you the recordings of the Tradecast and to our excellent audience, thank you for taking part in and participating in this very active, lively and important session. We'll see you soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.